Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. ESG is a broad topic that's still developing. We've discussed impact investing a few times on the podcast, but the non-impact ESG area will ultimately be bigger. Andrew Noble is on the ESG VC Initiative Steering Committee and has thought hard about many of the issues. We have a wide-ranging discussion about ESG generally, the challenges that small companies have, and how we can get this right. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Andrew Noble, who is a partner at Power Equity. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Brian. Delighted to be here. So we had one of your colleagues on for the very first episode a couple of years ago. So we're delighted to have someone else back from PAR. As usual, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became involved in venture capital? Yeah, I'm delighted to do so. I think my journey into venture capital was, is, is, well, I'd like to think quite unusual, but um, everyone's uh, experience of venture capital and, and how they got into it is perhaps different. For me, I actually never went to university, Brian. So um, mm-hmm. I was a professional athlete for many years. Uh, I was as, as, as a professional ski racer. So I was based out in Austria, um, racing all around the world. Uh, I had the great fortune of, of, of visiting many countries and places. Uh, I raced in the World Cup, uh, World Champs in 2009, and then the Olympics in 2010. And when I finished up, I made a very unusual leap from skiing to venture capital as an intern uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of 2010. And I was obviously very good at selling my sort of um, transitional skills. Um, and I was trying to draw comparisons to skiing to venture capital. And I think the only the one that I could come up with was both are very high risk. And when it goes wrong, it really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so I had actually made a couple of angel investments of my own sort of personal account towards the last last couple of years when I was a professional ski racer. And so I had an interest there um, in the sort of early stage tech ecosystem. And I ended up joining Par Equity as an intern, as I said, towards the end of 2010. And I found it an absolutely fabulous place to cut my teeth meet exciting young entrepreneurs who wants to change the world with incredible amounts of ambition, and then also rub shoulders with a group of um, very sophisticated investors who have experience and domain expertise through the PAR Investor Network. So for the first three or four years I was with PAR, it was just a fabulous place to skill up and learn the venture capital ecosystem a bit further. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about PAR. It's probably worth explaining to people who PAR Equity or what a PAR Equity is and, and, and how it's structured because it's a little bit unusual. And not everybody listened to episode number one. Great. Well, I mean, delighted to introduce PAR. Um, PAR has been around since 2008. We're based up in Edinburgh. We've got a team of 18, 10 in the investment team, eight in sort of support roles. We have now backed 71 companies, realized 28 of those, very, very good cash returns to investors year in, year out since 2013. So we built a, a fantastic reputation, I think, in the market, particularly in the north of the UK. Our, our investment sort of strategy is, is to find very exciting B2B technology companies predominantly those that have some form of deep tech or frontier tech focus to them. And we're investing at the sort of seed to series A stage. And that's typically check sizes of anything between half a million to three or four million that we're writing into these companies as part of slightly larger rounds. One thing that sets us apart from many other investors um, in the market is the way that we've combined our angel investment group, the Par Investor Network, with our discretionary managed funds. Because mm-hmm. Power this, it kind of sprung out almost as of the, the network, the angel network, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. But, but actually, credit to my colleagues who set up Power in 2008, because they actually looked at a lot of the data for venture capital returns and mm-hmm. compared that to the data for angel investors' returns in the UK. And actually what had transpired was that the angel investors, i.e. the amateurs, were outperforming the professionals in <laughs> IRR terms, right? So when, when they formed PAR back in 2008, they sort of said, well, why is this? And fundamentally, angels um, are typically approached by young entrepreneurs who are looking to them for mentorship and for investment. 
And so angels are typically investing in, in companies that they readily understand and markets that they've, they've operated in. Uh, and second of all, angels typically roll up their sleeves in an altruistic manner to help those companies through, through the good times and the bad times. And so when we formed Power Equity back in 2008, we, we really tried to think about how can we bring the very best of angel networks together with the professionalism, the rigor and the scale of discretionary managed funds. And so since its very beginning in the genesis of Par, we've really tried to combine both of those. And, and it's kind of it's evolved and grown over time. But what was particularly pleasing last year um, in 2021 was to, to win both the UK Business Angel Association's uh, Angel Group of the Year across the UK and also the EIS Investment Manager of the Year as well. And, and, and I think winning both those awards in the same year, although one should always take these things with a pinch of salt, was fantastic. And it spoke volumes about the model that we're trying to build here at Power Equity um, in the north of the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I've known Par now for several years. They were one of the first companies I reviewed, so vested interest here. But one of the things that I noticed very early on was that you had a policy about sin stocks, as I call them, so so excluding armaments and I can't remember, alcohol and, and gaming from the sort of investments you made, which at the time was was kind of unique. And I know you've personally, as as what have been involved a lot in ESG. So I think I, I wanted to steer the discussion onto sort of ESG and venture capital today. And maybe it's worth going back to the basics. Uh, we've ha- we've had a couple of impact managers, but someone who's sort of looking at ESG from an, a non-impact perspective, I, I think, would be very interesting. So, what is ESG? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you ask 10 people in a room, Brian, and they said, what is ESG, you'll probably get 10 different answers. I think that that is one of the challenges that we have in the market right now is, is being able to synthesize and describe what ESG is in a kind of uh, an agreeable format. It might be worthwhile me just sort of stepping a bit back and just describing how I kind of see that market between um, responsible investors, ESG, and also impact investors mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. If you imagine the sort of the, a pyramid, a sort of a market opportunity perspective from an investor's point of view, and if you imagine the, the, the first layer of that pyramid being, look, I'm an investor in the market. I have I have no restrictions in my investment mandate. I can invest my 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 clients' money into anything I see, and that pyramid is very that that layer of the pyramid is very very broad. That's fine. The next layer up is is where sort of I think power equity sits and where we have we have been for you know 10, 15 years. And it's not unusual for most venture capitalists to be what I would describe as responsible investors. So that is, we do not invest into companies where technology has been used to advance weaponry, to increase the consumption of alcohol or the prevalence of gambling or anything of that of that ilk. And so I think we as investors in the next generation of technologies and companies have a moral duty to ensure that we're investing in things that are fundamentally good for society. And that's, you know, that's that next layer up. So, so that, that pyramid is slightly narrower, that, that layer is narrower than, 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 than um, uh, the previous step. And then on top of that, you have, um, as you described, impact investors. And impact investors are really kind of looking at the underlying investments through that lens of of how is the underlying company and the customers of the underlying company receiving a beneficial um, impact as a result of the investment we're making. So that might be place-based, i.e. if we invest into this company, it's going to increase um, uh, employment. There's going to be spillover impact here when those, those employees spend their money in the shops and surrounding areas. They're also thinking about, you know, what is the social good of this? So it might be that this particular technology solves for potential harms in society, and that might be on online bullying or harassment. It might be uh, climate tech, for example, as a particularly big area. How will this technology improve uh, our society for the better? And so those impact investors sit on the next layer above, and their market's slightly narrower. And so they're forgoing opportunities in order to really... Um, uh, drive an agenda, which um, I wholeheartedly agree with as well. Where does ESG sit amongst all of that? Fundamentally, for me, I see ESG as being a framework that can be applied across any of these layers in the pyramid. 
it is a tool that is just it goes beyond carbon reduction mechanisms, for example. And that's that's typically where it's associated right now. But it's also a way of articulating something that most investors and portfolio companies are already thinking about and trying to do. But it's about trying to put uh, a framework around that to help 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 them achieve those things. So take so take things like, you know, particularly on the government side. I think most investors are already thinking about, you know, things like board entrenchment. Are we getting the best talent around our board to ensure that we're we're increasing shareholder value in this business? And so, so that's something that I think most people already have been doing for years, but we haven't really thought about it through the lens of ESG. And and social, you know, how how are we thinking about our supply chain? You know, if it, if it if it's a a piece of hardware or it's um something that's been made in, in the Far East, for example, are we really thinking about, you know, who's making that, what the impact is on those local communities? And that's something that's becoming increasingly prevalent. And then, of course, on that E-level, we're, we're clearly a lot more focused on carbon emissions right now, uh, waste, and how companies are thinking about those things. So ESG for me is about fundamentally how we can apply this framework to any business and, and, and when we fast forward 10 years, I fundamentally believe that it's a tool for simply building better businesses. Because at the end of the day, if you are reducing your carbon footprint, that is good news for your employees. That's good news for your customers. Um, and, and, and people will want to work with you and do business with you. If you're in, in improving your gender representation or your ethnic representation across your business, that is good news because your employees will be happier, your customers will see you doing the right thing um, for your business. And fundamentally, a lot of the uh, the research has shown that in improving diversification across your teams actually improves business outcomes as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that's, some, that's an interesting point. I, I want to sort of click onto that a little bit because here, something something I've been thinking about this a little bit is that if you've got a company that is sort of willing to diversify that suggests or has enthusiasm to diversify that suggests enthusiasm and openness and it's the sort of company that may actually already do well if a company is forced to diversify will that will they still get the same benefits i think it depends and it's very situational and i think at the end of the day i think the more that the company is aware that what diversification can bring to their teams, then that is a good thing. That's the first step. So take, say, take just just being open open book about this. Take Par Equity for example. We've got five white male partners, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Out of five partners, what does that mean? What sort of signal does that send to the market? So if you're a young female entrepreneur and you see that the five people on the investment committee don't look and sound like you. What does that mean for us? We're probably missing out on great deal flow because we're not we're not presenting ourselves correctly to the market. Furthermore, particularly in a business like I don't think you. I mean, to be fair, Barry, you're not unique. Far from unique in the venture capital industry with that issue. No, and it's a huge problem across the ecosystem as a whole. But but furthermore, I mean, a lot of venture capital works through you know network effects, and typically, and I'm going to be very generalised here men will hang out in social circles of men and females with females. And what happens is that uh, females who are, who are building great businesses just don't have those strong network effects into venture capital, which is, which is not right at all. Furthermore, in, we talk a lot more about neuro, neurodiversity, right? So it's not just about gender. It's actually about where, where have you come from? What's, what's your background? It, it's all very well and good having diversity in terms of color and, 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 and sex. But that comes through, you know, if you've been to the same schools, you've been to the same university, you're going to have homogeneity in your thinking. Actually, what we want as an organization is to have neuro, neurodiversity and gender, having increasing gender representation is, is, is a part of that. And so I think it's just good for business. So, so what are we you know, part trying to do about it? We can't, we can't kick someone out as a partner for being male. <laughs> but, what, but what we can do is really encourage pathways for female founders to come through into our ecosystem. And second of all, discuss how we're improving it within our own organization to bring young talent through as well so that we're increasing these pathways, increasing diversity of thought, um, and really attracting the best quality opportunities to our organization. 
because because it's not it's not easy as we we sort of mentioned about issues about the venture capital industry as a whole. What do you think the particular benefits? I mean, there's a lot of plus points that venture capital brings automatically. But what do you think the the challenges are that venture capital has in this area? I think one of the big challenges is that um, ESG, or at least the the measurements of the E, the S, and the G, uh, are being increasingly required by what we call LPs in venture capital. So those investors who are putting money in the hands of the the venture capital managers to look after and find the very best opportunities, they are looking for their own reporting purposes to understand where this money is going and what is the impact it's having. And by LPs, you mean the institutional or very sophisticated, not necessarily the retail investor that we get in EIS. Exactly. And uh, so that's that's one, one factor. Second of all, one of the pools coming from young companies is they want to understand how they can build better businesses beyond just the the P and L, and so they're asking for you know access to resources to you know build their company from five FTE to hundred. You know what what kind of plumbing do I need to have in place to make sure that I'm looking at these sorts of things? So there's a lot of pool from different parts of the market. However, when you look at organizations between five and 100 FTE, it's very difficult for them to have the technology systems in place and the resourcing available to do a proper drains up exercise on the data and also um, the information that's just built, you know, uh, pulled together manually to present that in a format to the venture capital um, a partner and also those later stage investors. And so that, that resourcing is not there. And second of all, the, the, one of the compounding problems in venture capital is that you'll have more than one VC on the cap table, cap table of a company. And so what you quite often find increasingly is different institutional investors asking for different types of data and the venture capital manager then pushing that upon resource constrained young companies that are simply looking to grow their businesses. And, and it makes it very hard because it's non-standardized for those companies then to pull together in different reporting cycles, different types of data. And it's just not a good use of everyone's time. And the, the third issue that we see is that these companies are high growth. So when we talk about reducing carbon emissions, that's all very well if you, you know, you've reached a, a relatively stable point, you're still growing, you can you can start to put a carbon reduction plan in place. But if you're growing from one year to the next, 10 to 50 to 100 employees right and you're you're trying to increase your sales you know across the uk across the us across europe you are automatically going to be taking more flights employing more people your carbon emissions are going up so one of the challenges is how do we build an organization which is trying to reduce its per person you know per capita carbon um, emissions as well as well as acknowledging that their overall company's carbon emissions might be going up um, in the short term as well yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, it seems to me where you have small companies who are often resource constrained in a way that, say, quoted companies aren't. There's an additional challenge there, but at the same time, I look at quote companies who are, to some extent, trying to take ESG on board, and the challenge of retrofitting effective carbon reduction policy, while it, it, it is not easy, you know, there it seems to me there's a tension here in that you have small companies. You don't want to overwhelm with information, but also you don't want them to get to that. Okay, they're, they're successful companies. Now we try and retrofit something that's going to be harder to do. There's a balance in there somewhere. How do you think about that? How do you think about helping companies get that balance right? Yeah, well, maybe it's a good time to segue into sort of ESG VC as well, and just talk about what we're what we're trying to do there, because that that's certainly a framework that we're trying to use and and trying to build with our portfolio companies. So. By way of introduction, I'm on the steering committee of an initiative called ESGVC. It's a pan-European initiative designed to fill that gap in the market of, of, of young companies of, sort of up to about 100 FTE, where we can provide them with a tool to help them understand, okay, within half an hour to three hours, depending on the size and complexity of the organization, um, how they score across various ESG metrics. And in effect, it's a bit of a white space analysis. So they will be able to fill out very quickly, okay, what am I doing? What are we already doing? What do we want to do in the next 12 months? And it will provide them with a dashboard at the end of that with sorts of things, you know, how they're scoring across the ES and G, and then bringing together the initiatives that they have, they have, they have identified 
as things that they would like to work on over the next 12 months. And that's pulled together. It should be reported to the board. The board should discuss it and agree and sign off, okay, what is our ESG plan over the, over the coming 12-month period? The steering committee at ESG uh, VC is made up of um, Par Equity, Atomico, Lakestar, Beringia, who chair it, Seedcamp, and, and Talis, and also the BBCA. And so we as a steering uh, committee are, are, are trying to pull in this data using the BBCA's research team, identify what the common things are, the common strains between different businesses in the market, what they're looking to do. So it might be reducing the carbon emissions. It might be you know, rolling out uh, D&I training. It might be measuring pay gaps. And then once we know what those common themes are, we try and provide them with the resources they need in order to achieve that. And those might be running webinars for these companies to help them get on that track or direct them to, to, to resources to, to help, help them achieve that. So that's sort of a bit of an introduction to ESG VC. How do we engage um, our portfolio companies in that? Well, we've now started to use this framework as a baseline measurement of each new investment that we make at Par Equity. What that does is really set the ESG agenda from day one. And it aligns us with the founders to say, right, we care about these things. And 100% of the time, Brian, we don't get any pushback on this. The founders actually care about this too, and they're delighted to work with us because we can help them on it, right? Yeah. And is it a case of the, it's something that they, they know is there? And I mean, I presume company management can't not know about this now, and they just don't know how to think about it? Or is it a case of they've already got, do you find a typical something that they're doing already? What, what, where do they start from? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I've heard from a portfolio company point of view, ESG is a topic, it's quite complex, and it's like everything that's a complex topic, you need to, you need to go back to first principles and break it down into mm-hmm. separate components, right? right? And I think what ESGVC is able to do is, is help them do that and help them think through that process. And, and, you know, that might be things that, you know, they either identify as you know, items that they want to work on now or items that they you know, park and want to work on in two or three years' time. At the end of the day, these businesses are going from you know, reasonably small sizes to something much more significant. Um, and we as investors are, are only a small part of that journey. Okay, So we're, our holding period is going to be five to ten years. Fundamentally, what we all want to do, both the founders and the investors, is to build a better business. And if these tools can help them do that, then that's fantastic. Because the output of it is going to be better financials, you know, increased revenue, increased custom, uh, employee satisfaction, hopefully improved, improving profitability, and ultimately increasing share value for the benefit of everyone. And when you look at the, at the prospective acquirers of these businesses in five or 10 years' time, you know, you fast forward you know, that sort of period. It's going to be incredibly interesting to see how they view a lot of these measurements, right? If you're a listed business and you're acquiring a company which hasn't thought through these sorts of these sorts of issues, you're not going to pay as much for it if 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 you are going to buy it at all, right? Well, because this has been my to... argument for some time is that you know eventually, you know, yeah, it will become standard that the the, acquis- the acquirer has their own ESG policy, and if they're buying something that isn't compliant. It's just going to cost them stuff to retrofit again, and totally, totally. So, so like, what, what does what does utopia look like for me? I, I think is is that old sort of adage, like in one year you think you're going to achieve, you think the world's going to change, you know, a lot more than it actually does, but in ten years the world changes dramatically more than you think it, you think it will. It, utopia for me is is where actually we don't talk about ESG or impact anymore. It just makes you know good sense to do a lot of these things. So. If we can get to a stage where businesses and management teams are doing all these things because it just makes good business sense, and if investors are investing in these companies because it makes good investment sense, then then we've reached that sort of utopia level. We're, we're, we're actually just doing the right things. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I mean, in terms really, of that pyramid you spoke about, I think that bottom stack has to disappear almost. Everybody, almost everybody, at least every, is in the second stack. I think there's still going to be a scope for impact as a separate you know, or, or as a tear up. But yeah, I, I think, you know, we're talking, you know, the targets that we want for the world, we have to get everybody beyond the unconstrained. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes and yes and no. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say, look, we don't want to have blinkers on and say that you know, we can't turn off oil and gas right now, right? There are certain there are certain things that we just can't dodge, and there, and and those companies need investment in order to supply oil and gas to you know various parts of the market, you know, around the world, and that's just something we have we we, we have to transition away from. But fundamentally, we 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 can't you know, bury our heads in the sands that doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, something like raising, you know, raising the question because, you know, oil for some people is a sin stock now. Whereas, as you say, it's something we need to, you know, we, we can't just, as you say, turn off the taps. And again, there's a difficult balance for people to strike in there. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, um, the S&P 500 has an ESG index. And you may have seen a couple of months ago that Tesla kicked, <laughs> Elon Musk kicked up a stink because Tesla was kicked off the index. But this is the point. I mean, I think a lot of people associate ESG with carbon emissions and carbon reduction. And actually, you know, from what I've been told, uh, Tesla were kicked off that index because, you know, in a large part because of its governance, which which it has very little of. Right. And 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 yet there were oil and gas producing stocks on there. And there, there is definitely a balance. And I don't think, you know, I'm not claiming that the S&P 500 ESG index gets it right. But I'm saying is that one needs to look more broadly, when you're talking about ESG, more broadly across the, the business, and is it doing the right things? But the, yeah, which raises a challenge for investors. So I was going to come to this later, but we'll, we'll come to this now. And that if you, if you think about E, S, and G and what investors want, right now, I would guess investors really care about environmental issues. They care somewhat about social issues, but certainly for the retail investor and, and governance to some extent is... A sideshow. It, it, it's a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And and you know some institutional people may see it differently. And I think vent, in a way it's a shame for the venture capital industry because one of the core things venture capital people do is put good governance in place. But from an investor perspective, the governance feels like definitely third of the three for most investors. But it seems to be in some places get an undue weight. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a. F- Fair description. I think it's probably in in part because when uh, particularly retail investors invest into funds, they fully expect that there should be good governance in these businesses. So the expectation is automatically higher. Um, and also it's somewhat driven by what we read in the press on a day-to-day business. And, and increasingly we are seeing, you know, problems with companies in the way that they are tackling carbon emissions or waste. So yes, that is front front and center of people's focus. But increasingly, and this is very prevalent in the tech industry, is is gender representation and ethnic minority representation in tech. And and you know if you read some of the excellent reports from Atomico on the state of European tech as an example, gender representation in terms of the the, the number of pounds, euros that are invested into female-founded businesses actually got worse last year in 2021, which I find is mind-blowing. Despite all the work, all the talking that everyone's been doing about this over the last two or three, maybe even going back longer, five years, it's actually got worse. And, I and think it did in the US as well, which is Exactly. So terrible. it's somewhat driven by outliers because we had a number of huge outlier investment rounds um, in the last couple of years. And those businesses have been going through the different sort of series uh, of, over a number of years. But that's that's still unacceptable in my mind that that 90, I think it's 90 percent of venture capital money goes to all male founded teams. Eight percent goes to mixed teams. And then only one percent goes to female founded teams, which is which is uh, completely underserved. Yeah. So, so I think. So, how does I the industry address that, or, or why is the industry not addressing that? Because it seems to me, as you mentioned, you're not seeing deal. You, you you think there's probably deal flow you're missing out. The venture capital industry as a whole is missing out on a whole pile of opportunities. Yeah, there, the, the, it, it is. I think people are trying to do more to to affect change. So you're seeing more um, female GPs uh, or female venture capitalist managers who who are out there raising money, and that's a good thing. That that has to help. There's a, there's a lot to unpack in this. Um, so particularly to Par and the Scottish technology ecosystem, I've tried to do a, a bit of work with 
Mark Logan on this. So Mark Logan wrote, he's the former uh, CEO of Skyscanner. Uh, he wrote the Scottish Technology Ecosystem Review um, in 2020. Very well written. Um, generally from all market participants, it was picked up and applauded in terms of the way that we can build an anti-fragile ecosystem, tech ecosystem in Scotland. It was fundamentally um, a very well articulated um, review. One of the challenges we have from a gender representation point of view is the number, when you look at the education pillar, is the female participation rates in computer science at school, which is, which is, which is sort of half that of their male peers, right? And then you look at STEM subjects, universities where female participation is much lower than than, than men as well. The class and that I taught, that, which was statistics, had a quarter or a third female. It, 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 exactly. So a lot of that feeds into the pipeline of talent coming through. So so there's kind of there's structural issues, but then also there's there's there's, there's un, there are unconscious biases at play, and then there are network problems at play as well. And uh, fundamentally, you've got a male dominance in, in VCs. So VCs need to be doing more to improve their hiring um, uh, procedures. Um, and there's a number of things that they can do around that. And we need to have greater support mechanisms for female founders coming through the system as well. So there, there, is, a, there is an incredible amount to unpack. And, 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 and we certainly don't have all the answers. But you know, really keen as a market participant to work with others to improve it. Yeah, and it seems to me that VCs, while they could still be more conscious about it perhaps, are in some sense victims of established practices because if you look at the profile of venture capitalists, predominantly they are former entrepreneurs or former successful entrepreneurs or they're former corporate finance people. And obviously if we've had a situation where there's very few successful female entrepreneurs, sadly you get that vicious cycle. And corporate finance, it's getting better and has been getting better steadily, but it still has been, in itself, the sector has been male-dominated. You know, th- th- those are sort of things that feed in as well. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, uh, again, just using Par Equity as an example, we, we, we are thinking about our hiring policy at Par, whether, you know, we're based up in Edinburgh, but we, we're actually thinking about increasing our, our hiring footprint so being able to access a broader talent base, um, so you know, hiring you know talent out of London, not just those that are perhaps based in in the north of the UK. We're also thinking, and this is this is something that's um, particularly interesting, is the language that's been used by you know most VCs or even or even management teams within tech. I mean, we talk about you know what type of personalities do we want? I mean, we all the sort of language being used. I, I want someone who's like a a warrior, somebody who's going to run through walls, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Language is so typically associated with male behaviour, mm-hmm. and that's not a good thing. So what we're trying to do is, is there are various, and this is hopefully it's helpful for some of your listeners. There are gender decoding tools out there that are free and online. So if ever you're thinking going through that hiring process, just put your just your role description and what you're looking for for through these gender decoding um, uh, tools. And it will identify which are typically male-heavy, you know, male-dominated language, and and the, the the stats are actually incredible. So, if but if you neutralise a lot of the language that you're using, you will increase your female application rates to that that job dramatically if you just change the the, the language that you're using. So, I, I think there's a lot that we can do to improve um and, and improve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So coming back to companies and individual companies and, and, ha- and how we develop these, you mentioned about setting targets at 24, you know, sort of p- targets over the next 12 months or whatever. Presumably, if you just dump all this on a company and say, fix it now, it's too much, it's overwhelming, whatever. How do you help companies prioritize, set what suitable targets, you know, figure out what they should be doing next? Yeah, I think it's a really, really smart question because the challenge is that companies will typically go through this white space analysis tool. Mm-hmm. They'll recognize that they're falling short on a handful of things, which is which is fine. It's a baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll they'll have, you know, in that dashboard recommendation to the board, which is look, there are 
these three initiatives we want to run on, you know, to, to reduce our carbon emissions. We want to install solar PV panels on the roof of our buildings so that we're using renewable energy. We want to reduce our waste, right? And then they'll do, you know, five initiatives on on the sort of social side, and then and then another sort of four or five on the governance. And that's normal to want to do better quite quickly. So then that gets elevated to the board, and the board should, should, in its role, be cutting through that noise and saying, look, fundamentally, we've also got to grow a business here. We've got to have a balance between where we're focusing our resources. And so the board's role is, in a very situational basis, identify the ones that are key to that organization and, and help, help the founders, help the management team uh, focus on the ones that really matter for that business. And of course, you know, our role as an investor is to support that process. We will either have an investor director seat, um, well, we, we, we most often do, but it might be that a member of the party team has slid back to an observer position. And we use someone from our investor network who's there to add more value than the investment team could as our investor director position as well. So that person is there to also guide that company too. Yeah, and and... In terms of, so interestingly enough, the ESG VC did a little survey that they published at the risk of broad generalities. Companies tend to do a little bit better on the social than the environmental side. Do you think the social's easier to implement? Do you think it's something where you can just sort of say, okay, we stick some recruitment good practice in place, whereas getting carbon neutral is actually quite hard? Or do you think it's a matter of priorities or or... I, I do. So that, so that was the analysis. I mean, just we, we did our pilot launch of ESGVC last year. We yeah. had. We'll publish a link in the show notes. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Brad. Um, so, so we had something like 225 early stage companies complete it. So, so we had enough data that was um, statistically significant. When you start cutting that up by stage and also um, industry or sector, it starts to become a bit patchy. So I wouldn't read too much into this because the data side, the data isn't isn't, isn't big enough. But fundamentally, um, what you've got is that the E was certainly lagging behind um, the metrics that we were we were measuring by on the S and G. But in an earlier stage as well, um, that was more prevalent. So a seed, seed stage, you know, it's clearly companies are going out there building a product, trying to get it into the hands of the customers, and that E element is less important. It's also less important because their carbon emissions at that size of the company are just having a, a much, much smaller impact on society as a whole. So, you know, it, it is not something that people want to focus on when you've got two or three employees. But over time, what we were seeing was that as companies raised further capital and they got to Series A and Series B, they were much more proficient on the ES and G as well. Is is the E harder to, 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 to roll out? I actually don't think so. I think we ourselves at Par Equity, so so we um, we looked at this. We wanted to become carbon neutral as an organisation. Uh-huh. Um, we used a consultancy called Carbon Neutral Britain to help us understand how to measure our carbon emissions, how to put a reduction plan in place, and then potentially how to offset those as well. And the exercise actually only took about half an half a day to go through that data, and it was largely because we had all that data in place anyway um, with good systems to measure the carbon emissions and then put plans in place to reduce them. But it was a half a day exercise for us to really understand it and then start to put plans in place, which I think was surprising to us. And and certainly it's something that a lot of early stage businesses are focused in on at the moment. So when we did the survey um, with ESG, VC, um, out of 225 companies that completed it, uh, measuring, reducing carbon emissions was the number one um, item that young companies were trying to achieve. And that is to your point earlier, which is a lot of this has been talked about in the press. You know, it's something that's good. It's good business to be doing. And it plays into the hands of your employees and also your customers in terms of showing that you, you're, you're, you're walking the talk. Yeah, yeah. And then carbon neutrality in particular, we obviously have this global goal of being carbon neutral by pick whichever day, whichever country or company or whatever, as I said, but 2050, I think, is the ultimate deadline and people are trying to do bits before. So any company that isn't thinking about that probably isn't really building for the long, long term anyway. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and look, I'm, I'm a VC, right? So I am an, I am an, I'm always an optimist in these things, but particularly have a huge privilege of being sort of front row and seeing new technologies emerge to fix some of these critical issues. 
One of our portfolio companies, Nova Pangea Technologies, for example, is at the forefront of this, and it's and it's and it's now producing sustainable aviation fuel, right? And and where we can see that roadmap going is that in the next five to ten years will be providing sustainable aviation fuel to the airline industry so that you know we're we're fundamentally just improving the the entire environment that we're, we're working in the ecosystem as a whole and and there are lots of examples of these types of technologies that are coming through and that's where coming you know doing a full circle back to the start of the conversation and we talked about impact investors impact investors have really led the way in this and and I've got huge amount of admiration for the approach that they've taken to drive this agenda because without them the rest of the community the rest of the ecosystem it's much harder to build a story around it mm-hmm. um, and they've shown that you know brilliant returns can be made by by making impact investments and 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 it's taken longer for the rest of the VCs ecosystems to get there but we are now there and we can see um that that we can uh, deliver good returns for investors but also strong impact measurements as well yeah so one of the challenges i think the industry has is that we've spoken about the challenges within smaller companies and inevitably new companies are not going to be fully developed is there a danger that the industry can over portray progress and i I think you know greenwashing is a big concern not you know across the whole dsg area and in terms of people saying oh yes we've got esg policies therefore we're fine but at the same time, companies are all you're dealing with are always going to be work in progress. There's a tension there, and and the way certainly outside investors understand this is is unclear, and it can easily stray into greenwashing. How do you see the challenges of that? I, I think there are a number of challenges, and we've seen it emerge most recently. So Goldman Sachs were received a, a very serious serious fine for ESG sort of greenwashing recently. I, I think, think Deutsche Bank did too. And Deutsche Bank did too. So, so I think people are trying to find their way here. I think there is a tendency for investment managers to almost uh, put the ESG labeling on existing kind of businesses and dress it up in that way. And you know, that's not really achieving anything that the investor wants to see. Right? I think ESG is more of a, you, you want to see that trend data. So it's okay, let's measure it. And then let's also see the improvement over a period of time as well. And I think fundamentally, yeah, if there are some investment managers out there who are over-claiming the EST elements within their portfolios, then that's clearly not a good thing. But the regulator is, is, is stepping in, right? And these companies are receiving fines. And so I think that this, this whole process needs to come with regulation to avoid greenwashing because fundamentally retail investors in particular want to feel like they're getting you know they are getting what was on the tin mm-hmm. and if they're not then there should be there should be sort of um a potential recourse as well so yeah i think it's i think it's driven by regulation to be honest uh, brian and 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 hopefully you know that that will improve over time as well as as the regulator you know identifies you know what is what is esg what's not and i think a lot of people in the market are trying to find their feet here yeah, I, I, as we're recording this, I believe something is imminent from the FCA. So whether it's out before this issue actually goes, this, this episode actually goes out, I don't know. But I understand we're going to see something very, very soon. Yeah, that's 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 what I, I, I I've been hearing as well, um, and particularly for retail investors, right? So it, it, it will hopefully provide a bit more guidance and, and help to retail investors and wealth managers um, in particular. To, to help them guide um, their clients in, 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 into the appropriate sort of products. And you mentioned already that you're an optimist. How do you see the this sort of developing over the next year or two? What do you think that the changes we're actually going to see externally? Yeah, I um, so obviously my market is very much focused to that kind of SME space, so the, the, the 5 to 100 FTE and, and going beyond that. I fundamentally don't mind if it's ESG VC or another product that really takes the kind of the lead on this. Uh-huh. Um, what I want to see as an investor is a standardization so that young companies aren't overwhelmed by the quantity and, and um, frequency of these data requests. I want to see a lot more automation as well. So I think we should be doing a lot more with our sort of data 
for want of a better word, plumbing in terms of helping young companies just pull that information automatically so they almost don't have to think about it. One thing that I'm nervous about is a backlash on ESG. And and I would love... I fear um, we're seeing that a little bit already, actually, in the, the greenwashing. And, and this is more driven by quoted world, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, 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 would, I would love to see what I describe as whether it's ESG or just something about, you know, building better businesses, you know, just, just overall increasing the performance of companies. I'd love to see that maintained in some shape or form rather than a backlash where people get tired of talking about it and hearing about it and it not actually becoming a factor in people's decision making at all. So those are the sorts of things that I'd like to see, but it's um, at the moment uh, quite hard to predict which, which way it's going to go. But I, as I said before, Brian, it's fundamentally about building better businesses, and I and I hope investors and also uh, young companies can see that. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope they can too, because we need it to be about that. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at you, and we'll get your brief thoughts. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made, and why do you make it? Great. We've made we've been quite active recently. One off the top of my head would be Morales Views. So a really interesting piece of technology. We, we completed that investment in February. They have developed a piece of software which is sold into EV charge point operators um, to bring together sort of hardware agnostic providers of EV charging, right? So so if you imagine the landscape for EV charge points at the moment, it's extremely fragmented. There are over 2,000 manufacturers of charge points around the world, right? And government and businesses are really wrestling with how they can bring the public and private charge points together onto one platform. Well, Morales Fuse has done that with a number of benefits across the ecosystem, right? So, so first of all, it's able to work with OEMs, i.e. the car manufacturers, to identify where the nearest charge points are, rather than just being on one specific network, they're opening those networks up completely. Second of all, you know, they're able to provide self-healing healing algorithms. So as soon as a charge point's down, the worst thing that can happen when you have 2% batteries, you turn up to a charge point and, 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 and it's offline. So, so they automate a lot of that self-healing. Um, so they'll, they'll put those back online as quickly as possible. And working with companies and particularly fleet management businesses, they're able to provide them with employee benefits, like the understanding of, of what benefits their employees are getting. So whether that's employees coming in and charging at the office or employees with company cars charging at home um, is understanding what electricity they're using and where they're using that from and how they're then how, how that is then expensed or, or charged back as part of that employee benefit package as well and there are a whole heap of another advantages to it too so that particular business is very exciting we made a seed stage investment into it the market pool for that right now is dramatic as you can understand a huge rising tide in, in the momentum that they're building so that's Maybe just one example for now. Excellent. We were only after one, but that sounds very exciting. <laughs> so in the classic VM VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which is the most important for you? I think the standard answer is management. I think we probably have a bit more of a bias towards product and market, and that's largely because we are slightly more deep tech investors. So what we've seen over our 13, 14 years of investing is actually if you have a really fantastic product with strong IP sitting behind it and a clear utility in a market, you can work with the existing management team or augment that management team over time to deliver success. So I think most VCs will say management is critical. For us, it is critical, but product is really important. So, so I think on balance, we're probably leaning a little bit more towards product and market with the ability to improve management over time as well. I shall compare your answer with your colleagues from two years ago at some point, <laughs> see if you've seen the same thing. Yeah, you get a different response. <laughs> Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. We've had a number of failures in part. We're venture capitalists, so, so you know, that's part of the course. One interesting one that sort of haunts me is a business that we invested into back in 2008, 2009, and continued backing over a long period of time. Um, And it eventually failed after 10 years. They were selling customer-facing tools to improve servicing for mobile network operators. 
And we had, the company had quite a bit of success getting into these mobile network operators, but fundamentally couldn't get as strong penetration as they wanted to. So it was always sort of one step forward, one step back with the business. And fundamentally- So, so getting trials rather than actual full Getting trials, getting traction, but what we failed to understand is that there were just too many challenges within these organizations. And, and fundamentally, they didn't care as much about the customer experience particularly for, um, for, for, for customers that, that call in uh, you know, to, to understand you know, their data plans or whatever. They, they didn't care as much about that experience as we thought they should. And, and so we continued to kind of support it as it went sideways, but didn't kill it off fast enough and didn't fully understand the, the buying decisions within these organizations well enough. And so that's that's one that I think we've we've learned a lot from um, over the years as well. Well, I'll let me follow on. You said you learned, you know, pick out one or two things you really felt you learned that you're implementing elsewhere. Yeah, so so we do a hell of a lot of customer diligence now, uh, and that helps because of the the stage at which we're investing into. So we so we tend not to do pre-revenue opportunities, although we do if team, product, and market are are fantastic. But, but that means that most companies that we're investing into are already selling in, into their customers. And because we're B2B focused as well, we can, we can diligence those customers really well. And we can start to understand the buying habits, the buying decisions, the, uh, the suite of alternatives that they looked at uh, versus the, the, the company that we're looking to invest into. So we, we definitely, as a result of that experience we had with that one company that I mentioned, dig a lot more into that into that process and we go quite deep on it and we do that internally as a team as well we don't outsource that okay so the eis and vct industry that we're working is fantastic in many ways but it's not perfect is there anything you would like to change about it yes i have one thing that i want to change although i don't i don't get much support from my ecosystem <laughs> eis um, i think i know uh, what's coming <laughs> I see a lot of challenge right now with the way that carryback is set up in the ecosystem. I don't think it's good for any market participants. And the one thing I would change was a very small tweak in the legislation is to increase carryback to two years. Why? Because fundamentally, uh, from an entrepreneur's point of view, there is more cash available between the period of January to March. And they're sort of scratching their heads saying, you know, why is deployment increasing between this time? Why is it not more evenly uh, uh, spread out across the year? And for those people on the call who don't know about this, when you're, when you're making EIS investments, you can carry back one year to uh, reduce your income tax liability. Um, but fundamentally, when you, you don't know what your income tax liability is until roughly September to December, and then you have a period of three to five months to invest that money to claim that carryback, right? So that's what's driving this behavior. By increasing the carryback from one year to two years, it will improve the experience for entrepreneurs. It'll improve the experience for wealth managers who are advising their clients into EIS because they're not having to ensure deployment within, within the tax year. And then it will improve the way that you know investment managers work who are not necessarily rushing money out the door to make sure that they're managing their clients' money effectively and, and getting it invested by tax year end. So I think as a whole, it will improve the legitimacy, the uh, the professionalism of EIS just by making this one small tweak. Now, there are plenty of other things that I think some of my colleagues in the ecosystem want to improve, so um, I'm, I'm not being heard <laughs> as lightly as I would like. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we, we have spoken this before, and I do have sympathy with what you're saying. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll see, we'll see if, if you get any more support. I have, I, have written, I have written a letter to Rishi Sunak, but I'm yet to get a response, Brian, so I, I suspect I'm probably in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> so, as... Listeners know I'm an avid reader. I always like to get new recommendations. Are, are there any books out there that you like and would recommend? Yeah, um, I wish I had more time to read uh, uh, books, to be honest, right now. But one of the ones that I've read um, a few years ago, which I thought was a bit of a, a startup Bible, was The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben, ben Horowitz. And, mm -hmm. and he's one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz. And I thought this was an incredible book for any entrepreneur because success is not linear, right? We all we see some of the huge success stories out there, uh, the Amazons, the Facebooks, a lot of those large tech stocks. 
their their rise to greatness. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's had its own challenges, but it's, it is it fundamentally been an exponential curve for those businesses when you look at the value of those of those companies. But what I love about Ben Horowitz's book, when he talks about his 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 company that he 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 sort of founded, was that he had I think a series of layoffs within his business, and it, and it went kind of sideways a couple of times, and then eventually they found product market fit and scaled the business to I think something like 1.5 billion that they eventually sold it for. I mean this is back in the I think early 2000s. It's just fantastic, and so I'd encourage a lot of entrepreneurs to read this if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I have read it, and it's is a very good book. It's it's got a deservedly good reputation. So, what do you wish you knew when you start with Power Equity that you know now? Huh. <laughs> good, good question. I think, of course, I've started twice with Power Equity. So once, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> once as a sort of um, ex ex professional ski bum, and and then the second time was sort of coming back into it. So I think the second time coming back into it, I knew a lot more about what I was getting into. But one thing I didn't expect and I was surprised by was the level of competition that exists in the market now. Uh, I, I worked in between my time at Power Equity, I worked as a management consultant down in London. It's fair to say that I was working probably in the region of 80 hours a week, maybe as much as 100 hours a week on some projects. It was hard work. Um, mm-hmm. I've come back to Power Equity um, and certainly being on that client side and it being much more patient capital, I expected slightly easier work-life balance, particularly having two young kids. But the thing to remember, though, and it shouldn't have come as a surprise, is that money is a commodity, right? And when you are investing it into young companies, young companies effectively have choices to who they want to work with. And so our job as a venture capitalist is to say, look, we can provide the money, but here's a whole bunch of other things that we can do as well. And and we've got to demonstrate that. And we've got to show the ability for us to add value on every single business that we work with through the good times and the bad. And that's where it gets a lot more challenging. And the market, the number of VCs out there has increased dramatically over the last three years. So, yeah, I think I think the ch- most challenging thing is remaining competitive and, and doing the right thing by our investors and portfolio companies. Out of curiosity, to what extent do you see that as secular versus a cyclical change? Because obviously we've we just, you know, there's a boom period. We had someone on the podcast very recently saying boom time's over. And I don't think it's, you need to be a rocket. I say capital is probably not going to be as plentiful. So do you think entre- entrepreneurs will be able to be as discerning in the future? Or because it's definitely been an entrepreneur's market. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. You're, you're spot on. I mean, the power dynamics are going to change slightly. I think it has been slightly more in the hands of the entrepreneur uh, over the last couple of years. There's been a wall of capital coming into the market. Um, typically in Europe, we, we lag slightly what's happening in the US and US investors are telling their portfolio companies to batten down the hatches right now and and, and increase that runway as, as long as possible because the hard times are coming. I think there is an element of that coming, but at an earlier stage, it's perhaps less less dramatic. Um, there is still a wall of dry, dry powder available um, for young companies. I think it will become harder for managers, VC managers, to raise capital for new funds particularly because a lot of VCs that are rolling out funds two and three are doing so based on paper gains and haven't haven't had any realizations yet, which is which is those those cash returns that I talked about at the very start. So I think it will it will come, but I don't think it'll be as dramatic as what some people are are, are talking about. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Power Equity, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, uh, contact any of us. Uh, we've got a website. <laughs> we've got 18 in the team. We've got an investor network of 209 members. Uh, please follow us on LinkedIn um, and just feel free to reach out. Um, if, you, if you're a young company with a business, it's an investment opportunity. I would encourage you, please go through our website. It's really difficult if we receive um, uh, decks through LinkedIn and whatever else. Um, we try and sort of democratize the process by allowing any entrepreneur to apply through our website. So do it in that way. And if you're an investor, um, please yeah, reach out to one of the team as well. And, and we'll be delighted to, to help you. I'd like to think we're, we're quite open and approachable, but you know, other, others in the market will tell you, will tell you that themselves. Well, I, I, I think you are, but I've known you all for, for a few years now, so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> 
Thank you very much for coming on today, Andrew. It's been very interesting talking about what I think is still quite a difficult topic. So thank you for your insights. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for having having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.